You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The Art of Crime is a brand new history podcast about the unlikely collisions between true crime and the arts. Season 1 is titled The Unusual Suspects, Artists Accused of Being Jack the Ripper. It profiles six renowned artists who have fallen under suspicion as the Whitechapel murderer. Lewis Carroll, yes, the guy who wrote Alice in Wonderland, is the one best known to us today. Joining him, among others, are the master wig maker and costume designer said to have supplied Scotland Yard with disguises while it was hunting the Ripper. The actor who originated the dual role of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and was playing it in London at the time of the killing spree. And the Victorian pop star whose brother, It So Happens, has also been accused of committing the crimes. As you meet each artist, you'll find out who they were, what it was like to work in their trades in the Victorian period, and why they've been nominated as Ripper candidates. You'll also explore this larger question. Why have artists, especially great artists, proven so attractive as suspects? Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to visit www.artofcrimepodcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. Hi everybody and welcome to Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. With me, your host, Katie Charlewood history harlot and reader of books. Who has managed to lose her microphone stand? So I'm sitting here holding it like a buffoon. And I can only hope that I am holding it an appropriate distance from my face. Because I don't have like the guard and any of that kind of stuff. I've also hurt my back. So holding it isn't easy. Just because the angle I kind of have to have my body at like my back I can feel it spasming right now I've, I've swallowed a bunch of painkillers so we can hope that things will turn out well I guess anywho back to a more positive note hello everybody who's been listening to me on Spotify listen I love Apple podcasts as much as the next person but Spotify really came through for me this year so thank you to everyone who has been rating and reviewing five stars so if you do listen to me on Apple podcasts maybe you want to get on that Do you want Spotify fans to beat you? No, it's not a competition, but it is. But it's not, but it is, but definitely not. But it sure is, go do it. You see, Spotify wrapped, if you don't listen to Spotify or if you live under a rock, Spotify does this thing every year where it shows you like everyone you've listened to and all this kind of stuff. So it'll show you like the music you listen to, the podcast, so on and so forth. But if you are a podcaster, and I don't know how it works for musicians because I'm not one of those and I don't really know any professional ones anymore. But as a podcaster, it shows you, you know, how many countries you've reached, how many listeners like you have, uh, like what percentage of Spotify podcast listeners like share you and things like that and who listens to you. So currently, of 2022, Who Did What Now was in the top 5% of most shared podcasts on Spotify. Like, of all the podcasts that exist, not just in the history section, but like all of them in the top 5%. And then, and then, in the top 1% followed. Now, I understand there is literally millions of podcasts out there, but that's still fucking good. I'm very impressed. 
you know how, how like proud I was that a 15 year old Canadian student referenced me in their history homework, right? Like I, I dined out on that for days. Do you know how insufferable I'm gonna be now? Like, absolutely. I am so happy. Like, ah, oh, uh, honestly, even though I have, I had to have a break for like a bunch of physical and mental reasons. Y'all have really, like, not dropped the ball at all. You, you, you're still listening. You're still reading. You're still reviewing. And frankly, you're fucking fantastic. And. I heart your faces. I really do. I'm so happy. That sounded very sad. I'm like, I'm so happy. She said in the saddest voice. But no. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking quit your jibber jabber and fact me. In fact you I will. But first, we've got to get our source on. Our sources are... Trench Warfare, 1914-1980 to the Live and Let Live System by Tony Ashworth. Meeting on No Man's Land, Christmas 1914 and Fraternization in the Great War by Malcolm Brown. Silent Night, the story of the World War I Christmas Truce by Stanley Weintraub. The Christmas Truce, Myth, Memory and the First World War by Terry Blom Crocker. Truce in the Forest by Fritz Vinken. Unsolved Mysteries, yes, the TV show, warhistoryonline.com, and of course our old friends, history.com. Are you sitting comfortably? Good. Then let's begin. First things first, this week's episode is actually dedicated to my dear friend Matt. Matt is a sometime historical reenactor and future historian. As I have ranted many times on this podcast, military history is not really at the top of my sort of knowledge set. To say it's not my forte is true, That that's factually correct, it's not. And like most things that I do not have an expertise in, I will reach out and speak to someone who has a level of expertise, who has a knowledge that I don't have. It's okay not to know shit. That's why a lot of you listen to me. You don't know everything I'm going to tell you. I don't even know everything I'm going to tell you. There's a possibility I spoke about something in episode, I don't know, seven. You could repeat it to me. It might not even be in my brain anymore. It could just be gone. Like, (laughs) I have ADHD, forgive me. But when I don't have expertise in something, I go ask. Because even if, say for example, I, I wanted to know about muskets or... Bayonets. I had a bayonet question, and so I was asking him like about how bayonets and how they work, and like just general weaponry questions, weaponry, weaponry questions. So I don't have the answers for stuff, and if he doesn't have the answer, he can definitely point me in the direction of where to find it, you know. So he has been helping me a lot with some questions I had regarding certain things, and so my dear friend. This episode is for you, because this is about the war at Christmas. The war on Christmas, you say? No, 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 no. At. At Christmas. So that's why this episode is a little bit different, because it's more of a theme than one cohesive story. Because I thought, this is pretty interesting, and not everybody knows all 
about all of this. And I don't usually talk about war history a lot, but I thought this is kind of more fun and it's more social, more kind of my alley. So we are going to start off with the 1914 Christmas Truce. Now, quite a lot of you know about this. You've seen the Cadbury's advert where they're kicking a football on the field. And if you don't know this, well, sit down and get ready to be informed about things. So the Great War, as it was known at the time, it had been raging for several months. Like, they were told, ah, it'll be, you know, a couple months you'll be home. Don't worry about it. It'll be over, lads. Chill. It was not chill, and it was not over. So by the time Christmas starts coming around, you've got so much shit. You have a lack of morale, you have trench foot. Everybody had trench foot. It's the one thing I, I mainly know about World War I history. Trench foot. Lice. How they would light matches and just... Pop the lice off their body. They would just... You know, like, snap, crackle and pop? Like the cereal? That's what it was like to just burn the lice off the body. This is not... This is a segue. Back into it. So, yeah... They are in these, let's face it, inhumane conditions. They are just murdering each other left and right. And it's coming up to Christmas. And Pope Benedict, he's like, I think there should be a truce. As it is Christmas, Jesus would want it this way. And the generals and the higher-ups are like, (laughs) don't be ridiculous. No, we have a war to win. We're not going to stop and... Have a truce? What poppycock is this? No! And then Christmas Eve rolls up. And it is wet. It is muddy. These men have been crouched in trenches for months. They're in this robberous of fucking terror. They are very aware that this is a live or die situation. They could lose themselves, their family, their friends. If they fail, what happens to everyone back home? Do they fail themselves? Do they fail their country? Do they fail their comrades? They could lose their lives. They are suffering from insomnia. They're seeing the faces of their dead when they close their eyes. They're trying to smoke cigarettes that are too damp to light. They're trying to eat biscuits that are too stale. They say it's the hope that kills you, and to them hope is a soft bed and a warm embrace, something that they know they may never feel again. And on the pitch black winter's night, December 24th, 1914, instead of silence, they hear silent night. Stille Nacht. And it's coming from the German soldiers in the trenches. What, like, several feet away? The trenches are actually so much closer than you think. It's like six feet, three feet. There isn't a huge amount of space. The Germans are singing carols. They're like, it's Christmas Eve. See, here's the thing about Germany anyway, is that Christmas, the general Christmasiness of it all, It is done on Christmas Eve, not Christmas Day. Christmas Eve is the bigger celebration. So that's when they would. 
So of course they're singing. They're singing their carols and as the, as the as the British soldiers crouch in the trenches, their clothes sodden with water and mud, they hear a German voice shout out, Come over here! And he's like, I'm not coming over there. Because he's suspicious as fuck. Because of course you are. Because that's the enemy. They tried to shoot you earlier in the day. And he's like, fine, I'll come out if you come out. So they meet halfway. And they start sharing stuff. So like they're giving tobacco to each other, pipe tobacco that's, you know, they can actually smoke. And listen, nobody's promoting smoking on this podcast, but if you're at physical war, like literally, I'm going to allow you a cigarette. I think you can have it. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna yuck your yum in this situation. Oh no. So they're like giving tobacco and they're showing pictures of, of their, their women back home. They're chatting and laughing and they're like swapping chocolate. Can you imagine? Like you've been living off absolute gruel and just snuff and other shit and you're being given chocolate? Oh yes. That's, you're definitely, you're definitely feeling good now. Oh, and wine. They had wine. So, you know, they they basically have a party, right? <laughs> like, in the middle of a war, and they're just having drinks and sweets with the enemy, like. And it wasn't just on no man's land that this sort of happened. These little truces sort of happened all over, all over the show. And like all over the Western Front, like these little truces just kept happening. And it was without, you know, any permission from the higher ups from command at all. These soldiers were just like, fuck this for a game of soldiers. We need a break. And so for some, it was something as simple as giving them time to reclaim their dead. For others, they're sharing gifts and For some, these truces actually lasted for several days, you know, for recuperation and, I don't know, chilling out morale, just somebody can have one night's sleep. And all of this sort of weird stuff, I say weird because, you know, you're at actual war, starts happening all across the front. So you've got Germans using candles to light Christmas trees, I'll be honest. Doesn't seem like the smartest idea. I mean, everything is basically frozen, so there's probably little damage to be done. But yeah, so they've got their candles. I know Christmas trees were originally done with candles. Don't at me. So like they're lighting fucking trees up. And (laughs) one British soldier, as it turns out, was a barber. So he sets up this little like impromptu barber shop and he starts charging the Germans like two cigarettes each for like a haircut or a shave (laughs) I fucking love it I am obsessed with like human ingenuity anyone who's listened to me for a while knows this and so it's really it's really I fucking love this he's just like yep setting up shop I've got a skill set y'all beards are really bushy you need to sort this out this is just not a look that's working for you and I would like to be paid in cigarettes and maybe some chocolate, please. Thanks. 
And then, on no man's land, as sort of the Germans and the British and the Belgians are all just kind of there, a football appears from the British side, I might add. Like, it came from the British side, not the German side. This is this is every, every account I've read says it definitely came from the Brits, which is good enough. I mean, are we really surprised? They really love football that much. They were like, we're bringing it to war. <laughs> and so the ball comes up and like, and it starts off with like a couple people playing kickabout. And then it just builds to a point where there's just, like there was one report that said that there was a couple of hundred people taking part in this game. Like it just so massive and all these men were just so, you know, I don't know, um, like, like it decompressed, it was cathartic, it was something that was needed for the morale of, of war. And so they play this massive fucking game of football with a ridiculous amount of players. I mean, was there a goalie? Like, there are questions I have to ask. Like, did they have goalies? Like, did they think that Hans over there was going to be putting goals and we were going to have, like, Gerald over here in our end? Like, who was the ref? Was there a ref? No, no. Can you imagine being the ref? Ah, I was like, no. It wasn't all fun and games, though. There were some truce as well that were happening that, you know, there would be soldiers out in no man's land just, you know, chatting and the other side would just sniper them, which is, I mean, rude, if nothing else. And at the end of this, when, you know, everything went back to normal, like people who were known to have been involved in this truce, especially on the British end, which we would know more about, like there was a lot of punishment for fraternizing with the enemy like it was they were not happy because they didn't want the other soldiers the, the the enemy to be seen as human you don't want to humanize your enemy you don't want them to be a fully fledged you know person or you know with hopes and dreams and a family and everything else you want them to just be the bad guy because it's easier to get your men to just kill the bad guy. That's an objective. He's bad, he needs to go. But when you humanize that person and you realize that they're just doing the exact same thing that you're doing, then that leads to issues. Like, you don't want that, you know? And as a result of this, as a result of the Christmas truce, there was a ban on this kind of fraternization, which is why it never happened again. Like this didn't happen, especially not on this scale. This did not happen post 1914. Like it's the, this truce particularly has not happened before and it did not happen since. Like this was underlined, like, nope, not happening again being said there was at least one wartime christmas truce that happened post 1914 and that 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. As in Belgium, in World War Two. My kitty, what a smooth transition that was. That was a good segue, wasn't it? Yes, yes. So the Ardennes Forest in Belgium, which I've probably mispronounced horrifically, you know, December 16th, the Nazis launched this surprise attack on the Allied forces. And this becomes known as the Battle of the Bulge. You may have heard of it. It is this brazen, last-ditch attempt to take the Western Front. It really is. And it is fucking brutal. Like, it is heavy. The losses are massive on each side. And it's made worse by, like, I think a week later, massive snowstorms. You've got blizzards, you've got fog, you've got rain. Everything is just fucked. Like, it is, it is cold, it is wet, and your vision's impaired. Anything that could go wrong basically did in this point. What makes it worse as well is that a lot of the American soldiers who had landed on D-Day, which were uh, their summer uniforms, because, you know, it was June when they landed, and it's now fucking December. They are not dressed... For, you know, winter in Europe, shall we say. So they're in, like, freezing conditions. They're in their summer clothes. Meanwhile, not so very far away from the fighting, there's a wee cabin. An old cabin. Not the best of abodes, but it will do when there's a fucking war raging around you. Where Elizabeth and Fritz Vinken are staying. So they're there because Mr. Vinken, he had sent them there because their home back in Germany had been destroyed. So he's like, go there, you should be safe and protected and I will join you. But because of the snow and the blizzards and the storms, he was a wee bit delayed. So I think Fritz is 12 years old at this point. And he and his mother, Elizabeth, are in the cabin. She's making soup. Like the most basic soup. (laughs) Just enough sustenance to keep them going until, you know, his father returns. And as she's making what is probably a very basic and, you know, less than tasty soup, there's a knock at the door. And they open it up. And who is there but three Allied 
soldiers. This is a time where taking in the enemy would get you killed. Like that is a corporal punishment type thing. So being German and taking in these soldiers would have been a massive fucking risk to this woman and her 12 year old boy. Because to them, a 12 year old boy could be seen as a man and as such would be deserving of the same punishment as his mother. But she lets them in anyway. So these are, I think, American soldiers. And this may surprise you, but they don't actually speak any German. One of them, however, does know a wee bit of French. And so he explains that, you know, one of one of the guys is injured. He's got a gunshot wound to the leg and he's bleeding. And there's a snowstorm, they're lost, they're hungry. And he's like, can we please just come in and spend the night out of the cold so we don't freeze to death? You know, if we're outside, we are gonna freeze to death. And so he manages to convey this in his broken French and interpretive sign language, shall we say. And yes, even though harboring an enemy soldier was illegal and they would be executed, Elizabeth Vinken decided it's Christmas Eve. She was a religious lady. This was time of the Lord and other things. And so she invites them in. So the wounded fella, she gets him nice and comfortable or as comfortable as she can make him in this cabin in the middle of nowhere. And so she gets Fritz, the boy, to fetch like potatoes and a rooster that they'd been saving for their Christmas dinner. Because she's like, we're going to have to feed these boys. Like, look at them. You know, I mean, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever met a an old school European mother. But they take no shit. And they, it's, it's the... They, 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 they have opinions and you don't really want to mess with them, really, I find. And so she's like, no, we need to feed these boys. We can't be doing this, so. So, Fritz gets the potatoes and he gets the, the rooster. And obviously, Mrs. Rankin's like, kills it, starts plucking it. And then, there's another knock at the door. So yet again, Fritz opens the door. And who does he come face to face with? But four German soldiers. One of them says that he, you know, they got a separate from their unit, they're fucking hungry, and they're gonna freeze to death if they stay outside. And so faced with the fact that they're harboring the enemy. Those Nazis outside. I feel like the pun, a recipe for disaster, would be in poor taste, which is also in poor taste. Hmm. Anywho, Elizabeth goes outside. And she closes the door behind her so that the Americans do not hear her. And she informs the Nazis outside her door that she has some visitors inside that they may not like. And if they want to enter her cabin, 
they have to leave their weapons outside and they have to not start shit when they get in the door. And these are hungry, starving soldiers who are escaping a blizzard and are trying not to die. So they say, yes, ma'am, absolutely 100%. Naturally, though, everyone is wary as fuck. And Elizabeth goes inside and she explains to the American soldiers, this is what's happening. You're going to give me your weapons too. So everybody agrees. All the weapons are put outside. And Mrs. Vinkin gets started on dinner. So they shuffle in and it's like a middle school dance, you know. So you've got the Germans on one side up against one wall. You've got the Americans on the other side up against the other. And they're just like looking at each other across the cabin. Is one of you going to ask the other to dance? No? Okay then. So things are really kind of tense and, you know, then everyone's favourite social lubricant gets involved. Alcohol! So the Germans happen to have some bread and wine and they share the bread and wine with, you know, the Americans. And as it turns out, one of the Germans... He speaks English and he was training to be a medical student before he joined, you know, the army. So what he does, he, you know, examines like the gunshot wound on the American soldier's like leg. And he basically does whatever he can to treat it given the situation. And he's like, you know what, with a rest and a wee bit of food, you should actually be relatively okay. So by the time dinner is actually ready, they're all kind of, you know, jovial and there's a bit of camaraderie going on, you know, because they see each other as actual people. See the whole humanising thing again? There you go. And so they're chatting to each other in like bits of English, bits of French, bits of German, depending on who is involved in the speaking. And everyone gets a good feed. And the very next morning, you know, The Americans collect their weapons and the Germans collect their weapons. But before they shake hands and part ways, they do a couple of things. The first thing they do is work together to fashion a stretcher for the wounded American soldier. And another thing that happens is that the Germans bring out this map and a compass and they show the Americans how to get back to like, you know, the Allied lines. But they also point out the booby traps that have been set along the way so they know how to avoid them. Which is pretty cool. And so the witnesses to this are these seven soldiers, Mama Vinkin, and then Fritz. And so yes, the soldiers shake hands and part ways. Never to see each other again, I don't think. And the Vinkins in their little cabin, they survive the war. And Fritz, he grows up, he gets married, and he travels to America and becomes an American citizen. He ends up in Hawaii and opens a bakery, because of course he does. And he's been telling people this story all his life, and of course nobody believes him. Because who the fuck would believe this? I mean, you were a kid, Fritz, what are you talking about? You know nothing. Until an episode of Unsolved Mysteries comes on. So Fritz's story is on Season 7, Episode 16, 1995. 
an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. And it recreates like the Christmas Eve meeting between the soldiers. And this volunteer in a nursing home is looking at this going, wait a minute, that looks like Ralph's story. Because Ralph, Ralph Blank, he's been telling this story to everybody. And just like Fritz, everyone was like, yeah, fucking right, Ralph. What are you talking about? Stop. Clearly you were, you were on the amphetamines during the war. Because this didn't happen, you know what I mean? And so this, this chaplain, he contacts Unsolved Mysteries. And he's like, I know one of the soldiers. Like, I know one of the dudes. I know one of the vets, you know? And so Unsolved Mysteries contacts Fritz and Fritz ends up phoning Ralph and the and Fritz flies to Maryland like the next year and then I think Fritz manages to find one more of the soldiers the American ones after that but he never finds any of the German ones that being said I I don't know if if you were in the German army in the 1940s if you wanted to be telling people that or if they'd even survived like we have no fucking clue but finally, can you imagine how validating that would be for like Ralph Blank especially? Like if he'd been telling people this story about his time in the war and everyone kind of like brushed it off. Like it's such an amazing and important experience that, that you know, and to have it probably dismissed for so many years and to finally have that validation and to have living proof of what happened because... I don't know about you, but sometimes I look back at, you know, my life and, and it feels like a completely different life. It feels like a completely different age. And like there are portions of my life that I've straight up forgotten. And then when I remember it, I'm like, oh yeah, I did write pantomimes in Scotland. Like these are things that, you know, they just feel like a completely different person. And so if you have something that's deeply ingrained in your memory like that and it just, you're constantly dismissed, it can make it feel like it's not real even to you. But for him to have that fucking validation, yes, Ralph, you go, Ralph. 10 points to Ralph. Speaking of points, do you like board games or even playing cards? Again, I'm so smooth with these segues. So smooth. Mmm. <laughs> Oh, the next part, or should I even say the final part of today's story, involves the Bicycle Playing Card Company. So if you happen to know a soldier, that soldier has probably played cards at some point during his time, you know? They're easy to carry, most people can learn how to play a basic game, whether it's poker or pontoon or anything like that. You know, maybe you just don't like people you want to play a game of, like, Patience or Solitaire. We're not going to yuck your yum here. Go fish. Who knows? Whatever you're into. Snap, if you really struggle with old card games. I mean, I feel like Snap might trigger something. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. So, throughout history, as long as playing cards and soldiers have had the opportunity to mix, they have been. And during World War II... British forces, or allied forces I should say, decided to contact the Bicycle Playing Card Company because they wanted to use the Geneva Convention to their advantage. You see, gentle listener, thanks to the Geneva Convention, prisoners of war were allowed to receive packages and mail from the Red Cross. 
as long as the aforementioned packages slash mail did not contain weapons. Which was like an aha light bulb moment for the Allies. So they used this to their advantage as much as they could to smuggle in, you know, useful things to help prisoners escape. And this led the Allied intelligence forces to contact the Bicycle Playing Card Company with a suggestion slash request to make a very specific set of playing cards. And this was a top secret mission to produce a deck of cards that included a hidden map, directions, escape routes, uh, like information and tips which could help someone reach, you know, friendly lines or cross a border into neutral territory or a neutral country. But how did it work? Well, I'm glad you asked because I'll tell you. So playing cards are actually made of two layers. So there's the layer which makes the back of the card and the layer that makes like the face of the card. And the map and the instructions were actually sandwiched. People always say concealed, like it was stuck between the two. So it was between these parts of the playing card and once it was submerged in water, you could peel off the layers and find like parts of the map on the card. And so you would effectively like jigsaw, you would like put it together and then ta-da, you have a map. Luckily, you know, being soldiers and all, and I'm assuming some of them were Boy Scouts, you know, fairly certainly knew how to read a map and they would be able to put it together, luckily. Can you imagine if you were just like absolutely fucking shit in cartography and you were just like sticking Belgium on the wrong side? Like, oh no. So yeah, anyway, they'd put like the pieces of the map together and it would show a map of the area they were in. So depending on the camp you were in, you would have a different map. So yeah, when it comes close to Christmas time and the parcels start getting handed out by the Red Cross, when they're also handing out these decks of cards, like it's completely unnoticed by, you know, the German guards because the soldiers were always receiving decks of cards and they were always playing cards. So it wasn't unusual. It was very typical and it just went right under the radar. So we don't actually know too much after the fact about this. We know that Kolditz Castle, at least 36 prisoners managed to escape using these decks of cards and that there was like 316 uh, escape attempts using the bicycle playing card cards. But one of the reasons why we don't actually know much about these now famous yet incredibly secret uh, map cards is because they are Kinda, sorta, technically a violation of the Geneva Convention. Because, yup. So for a long time it was kept stum, like people were not talking about it. And we know very, very little about these, um, the clandestine deck of cards. And even though the Bicycle Playing Card Company did, like, recreate these, except they had the map on the back of the cards so like there was no like submerging and peeling involved there's like so many details and information that that we are probably never going to know uh, because somebody sealed a document somewhere and hid it or burned it or whatever like we'll know the stuff they want us to know but i feel like there's some stuff that's just going to be fully blacked out and we're never going to know the details of but yes that is the story.
of how playing cards helped prisoners escape POW camps in World War II. And so, what have we learned today? That owning a deck of cards is probably a good idea. That humanity often shows itself in the direst of circumstances. And never mess with German mums. They, they are scary ladies and they will fuck you up if you mess with them. Let's face it, we know it's true. So, that being said, if you liked my retelling of these Christmassy story informations at war, please feel free to rate and review five stars. I'm also waiting for Matt to like listen to this episode and be like, you know you got this wrong, right? <laughs> I'll have like scribbled notes somewhere and I'll fuck something up. And and like it's it's recorded now. I'm not going back to change it. It's done. I'll do a correction next week if I've really made something dodgy. Don't forget you can follow me on all of the social medias. I'm on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook as Who Did What Now Pod. I'm on Twitter, if Twitter is still a thing, Who Did What Now PD. And I think I'm on other stuff. Like, I haven't got round to doing the YouTube stuff because I do not physically have the time. I think that's everything. If you want to follow me on there, DM me. I generally respond if, I, if I'm not working or crying on the floor from back pain. <laughs> and I guess it's recommendation corner. Ba -ba 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 -ba. Don't know why I started to give myself theme music. That was odd and probably very awkward for the listener. Listening recommendation. I am going to recommend one of my favourite Christmas songs and it is the perfect Christmas single by Frisky and Manish. Go listen to it on Spotify. It is... I enjoy it. I listen to it every year and I regret nothing. It's... it's... it uses the pun Franken-sensational and for that I think it's worth a listen. For watching, I've actually been watching Ted Lasso with my mum. It's usually our Monday thing that we do together. We chill out and we watch a couple episodes of Ted Lasso. It's really fun. It's like a wee bonding thing. So Ted Lasso, everyone, it's good. You can watch it with your mum. That should be, <laughs> that should be on the review. <laughs> and for reading, I'm gonna go classic and I'm gonna recommend the Mystery of the Blue Train by Agatha Christie. Listen, if there isn't some kind of whodunit involved, are you really, are you really here? Am I here? No, not even a little bit. And so, before I go, don't forget, if you want to support the podcast, you can, I've got a tip jar on PayPal, you can go to paypal.com slash who did what now pod. Or you can just put who did what no pod at gmail.com and donate there. I've got a Patreon, which I am working on. There's not as much stuff in it as I'd like right now, but I'm working on it. And there is the Amazon wish list. If you want to send me some books for research or I don't know. I have some random shit on there just because I was like, that's cool. And I end up just like, yep, add to list. Uh, there's also... Uh, a care of address and fan mail address on whodidwhatnowpod.com so if you do want to send something you know you can always do it on there if you want 
I'm always happy to receive mail. I like mail that isn't bills. It's nice. And with that, dear friends, I shall bid you adieu. Adios, au revoir, revoirzen, my friends. Bye bye. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.